Welcome to Life Tips, the show that offers expert tips and savvy advice to make life easier and more fun on the web and around the world. Life Tips President Byron White talks to the latest trendsetters about strategies to grow your business. Editor Melanie Mayer interviews celebrities and expert writers on their tips for making life enjoyable and entertaining. Now, please welcome this week's Life Tips host, Byron White. Welcome to the show, everyone. We're here today to talk about predicting the future, and we're honored to have a celebrity in that space chatting with us today, the author of Super Crunchers, a hot new book that's changing the way that many of us are doing business, Ian Ayers. Welcome, Ian. Thanks. It's good to be here. So, Ian, predicting the future, using numbers to do it, an ambitious task for a professor of law at Yale University to take on. What was the inspiration for this book and your interest in this area? Well, I'm an economist as well as a lawyer, and I have become obsessed with crunching numbers initially having to do with legal issues, and it's grown, and my I started to notice that this trend toward crunching huge data sets is starting to impact real-world decisions, uh, not just in business, but in in medicine, in education, in field after field. Uh, traditional experts who base their predictions on uh, experience and intuition are, are losing out to a new breed of, of super cruncher. For those that are not familiar, if you will, with, with multivariant testing and A-B testing and, and, and the, the tools that the web marketers are using, maybe you could tap the audience into the fundamentals of, of regression analysis and, and, and how that's being used to, to predict the future. Sure. Well, there, there are two big tools that you can think about. There's the mining of historical data sets with uh, regressions and uh, other um, statistical algorithms, and then on the other side, there is the creation of your own data uh, with uh, randomized uh, assignment, and uh, and both are are making the way that decisions are made. Uh, with regressions, you take historical data and you um, uh, simultaneously uh, test for uh, multiple uh, possible influences. You troll through and you try to find the independent impact of 5 or 20 or 40 uh, underlying uh, influencers, uh, things that might impact uh, sales or uh, a heart attack. And, and these are things that uh, people might not have known that they have an influence or could, certainly couldn't have come up with a very good idea of how big the influence was relative to other causal factors. Now, how do you find influencers, to use your own language? Yeah, well, this is one of the things that uh, humans are still uh, centrally important in. There, there are an infinity of, of potential causes out there, and it's humans that have to come up uh, with the hypotheses for uh, what is important. But, but here's, the, here's something that I think people don't uh, quite understand, is when, when there are let's say more than five or ten underlying causes, 
Uh, humans often can pick out, we have agreement, of course, these five are going to be, uh, have a causal influence, uh, but we're not, uh, but we, we, we don't have a very good job of figuring out how big a causal influence, and we, we tend to fall in love with certain hypotheses and we put too much weight on that. Uh, uh, for example, there was a, a great study that was done on trying to predict Supreme Court um, uh, votes, how the nine justices would vote on every case the Supreme Court heard back in uh, the 2002 term. And in one corner, they pitted 83 legal experts, and in the other corner, they pitted an extremely crude statistical prediction algorithm. Uh, one, uh, and, and this, this statistical algorithm, it didn't even pay attention to the specific issue that the court was hearing, but it did pay attention to something that all humans know, and that is that the Supreme Court uh, dislikes California. It dislikes the Ninth Circuit. And uh, you don't have to be an Einstein to know that if you're in law. Uh, but uh, it's hard for humans to figure out how much they dislike the Ninth Circuit. And it turns out just by paying attention and putting the appropriate weights on these six crude factors, the statistical algorithm did a better job of, of predicting the votes than the, than the legal Experts. Tell us a little bit about your your, your famous story of, uh, of predicting the quality of wine. Sure. Well, uh, Ernie Ashenfelter, who is one of the great uh, uh, statistical economists in the world, he uh, he's a former editor of the American Economics Review, but he uh, has a passion for wine, and he went out and did a regression that uh, predicted using historical information, uh, predicted wine quality for Bordeaux based really on just three variables having to do with the growing temperature at uh, early in the season and at the time of harvest, uh, as well as the amount of rainfall. And this very simple regression made better predictions than eminent uh, wine tasters, the people that uh, swish and spit, uh, such as Robert Parker. Uh, and so uh, uh, again and again, we, we tend to think that the more subtle the prediction, the more you have to rely on experts with years of intuition, gray hairs. But in, uh, there now have been literally hundreds of tests that uh, suggest that the statistical prediction uh, does a better job. Now, tell us where algorithm prediction can go wrong. Yeah, well, it certainly can go wrong, and uh, when it in, in medicine, when it, when it goes wrong, uh, people can die, and uh, in, in finance, uh, when it goes wrong, people can uh, lose their shirts. So it can go uh, wrong, particularly when it's not, when the analysis is not contestable. Uh, we should really be uh, worried uh, when we just uh, trust a single study by a single uh, statistician, that it's, uh, we have more confidence when there are multiple studies done by multiple people bringing multiple um, uh, assumptions to the table. And, and this is one of the things I think the business still can do a bit better. There is uh, increasing amount of analytic competition where firms are, are getting into the number crunching game in a big way.
way, but many of them still are too unitary, and, and I think it would be good for firms and hedge funds to have uh, super-crunching audits where some extra people come in and put their eyes on the numbers and, and re-crunch it to see if it's robust to alternative assumptions. Do you ever worry about, I want to come back to this later at least two or three times because I think it's a tough, fascinating question and, 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 and I want you to think about it as well. Do you ever worry that the test results are going to influence quality design? Um, well, tell me a little bit more about that. So I, I guess I, I think that they, it, it will, but I'm not sure uh, what, that I uh, it should worry about it. So the simple place where it definitely does is test results are in, uh, influencing the design of the quality design of web pages. So you do A/B testing in a randomized or alternating fashion, and you find out that uh, uh, putting a picture of a puppy works better than putting a a picture of a kitten on the on your web page, and you get 10% more uh, 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 click-throughs. That, to me, uh, is impacting the quality of your web design, but it's not it's not worrisome. Um, or if testing tells you that uh, a certain type of consumer is likely to be more interested in buying guitars than drums, and you uh, and you you send them a guitar promotion instead of a drum promotion, uh, you change the quality. So those things uh, are impacting quality, but it's not not concerned. Uh, so come back at me. What, what kind of, what's the story that you're worried about? Well, when the web began its journey, we looked at websites like Amazon, for example, that featured tens of thousands of, of individual products, and there was a grid and template design and a clever way to uh, to throw other books that people may be interested in that they're considering buying and purchasing. And Amazon, in many ways, helped create a footprint for design that many companies migrated their e-commerce websites after. Mm -hmm. so we we had a, a follow the leader path, right? Yeah. So with, with, it would seem to me that with multivariate testing, similar results may end up happening once you learn a website is is testing for variable conversions with different looks and different feels and different designs and ends up landing on a final solution that is a maximized conversion. Are we worried that that's going to be a stripped-down version of, of an Amazon-looking site? So we, we take a brand like Nike and we tell their addicts, see, no more flash. We just want to sell sneakers. And the best way to sell sneakers is this cookie-cutter solution that maximizes the conversion where the images are the following size and the, the description is short and brief. And, you know, are we going to destroy design? That's my yeah. question. Yeah, so uh, excellent. So I, I uh, think that we're definitely going to see a shift of uh, power and uh, from traditional graphic designers uh, to uh, non-designers to, to uh, AB uh, testers, and uh, but I uh, but I actually see that really as a shift in power uh, from uh, the 
people in the room that have the coolest glasses, the, uh, the graphic designers, uh, to, to the consumers. The power, it's, it's the consumers ultimately get to decide what they like. And if they prefer a stripped down page with not a lot of uh, uh, gaws uh, on it, then that's, that's what they should get. And I, I am agnostic whether it's going to uh, lead toward uh, uniformity of web pages or not. Um, it might, uh, but one thing about this, this uh, um, uh, randomized testing is it's not a one-time issue. Uh, it, it will establish that as, uh, that as of today, the new pink is, uh, is purple, but uh, tastes change, and you're going to want to continually test to see uh, what works. And the fact that it works for Amazon, uh, uh, that purple works for Amazon, you, it might very well be that you make more sales by distinguishing yourself from Amazon. So uh, in perfumes, some manufacturers uh, make a good money by uh, imitating the popular pursuit, uh, perfumes, just like uh, uh, Armani and other uh, uh, perfumers uh, make uh, uh, profits by distinguishing themselves. And that's, I, I, uh, I'm, uh, what I'm committed to is I think that, um, um, here, let me put it provocatively, I want uh, to take away the power from those graphic designers that have, still have a stranglehold over uh, the web page design of uh, things like the New York Times. And I actually think uh, that they're not smarter than fifth graders in the following sense, that if you gave me um, uh, half dozen fifth graders uh, and I let them just come up with um, 50 crazy uh, design elements, I bet I could beat the status quo. I mean, I only need to have, you know, a couple of the 50 do better, and I get a lift over the uh, status quo, and having more people read your newspaper is not a bad thing. Well, one of the problems with, with, with testing in general is, is a definition of one design or look or feel beating another. Tell us some of the fundamentals about measuring success. Excellent. Well, it, it certainly depends on what you care about. And so in some, uh, in some uh, web um, contexts, it's going to be uh, sales. In, in others, it's going to be uh, registrations. Um, and in sometimes, it's just going to be stickiness with regard to, uh, 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 with regard to things like the New York Times and, and other uh, media, it's going to be the stickiness of the eyeballs. The more, uh, uh, the more uh, banner ads you get people to look at, the more uh, profitable it's going to be for you. So uh, you do need, in order to have valid testing of either the randomized kind or even of the historic kind, you do need to have some um, uh, consensus some, uh, of measurable uh, success. And so, for example, well, I think it's harder uh, at Yale Law School for us to do uh, super crunching on who to admit because it's very hard for me to get consensus with my colleagues down the hall here uh, about what it means to be a successful graduate of Yale Law School. Is it 
making money? Well, yes, but that's not all of it. Is it, you know, working on the Supreme Court or becoming a Supreme Court justice? There's just so many dimensions that it's hard to do. And that can be the multiple dimensions of success make it harder to, uh, to figure out, uh, to, to do number crunching in certain contexts. But this isn't, uh, this isn't normally uh, nearly as big a problem in a lot of e-commerce settings. Tell us, tell us about um, your, your thoughts uh, about eHarmony. I know you've spoke, spoken about eHarmony and, and have some thoughts about their whole matchmaking. matchmaking. Yeah, um, well, I'm a, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of uh, of uh, the wisdom of the crowds, but I, to me, eHarmony represents kind of a new wisdom of the crowds. Uh, the uh, what, what most people talk about in wisdom of the crowds is, is soliciting the crowds' own beliefs about something, but eHarmony. Harmony did something uh, different. They, it's a very different uh, matching site. Instead of asking you who you want to go out with or asking the crowd who you should go out with, uh, they instead just give you a personality test. They, they don't really care nearly as much about uh, who you want to go out with. They figure out who you are, and then they look at the hidden wisdom of the crowd. They go out to a historic data database of tons of married couples, and they look and see what kinds of personalities match well uh, with each other in the sense of having happy marriages. And so eHarmony will end up uh, using this hidden wisdom of the crowds that's hidden in their actual behavior to possibly match you with people you never would have thought you'd like going out with. And it's a, it's a very different uh, business model. Tell us um, about some of the guidelines that you think uh, webmasters should use in uh, in implementing tests and testing variables and different different spots on a page. Even if you want to get that granular, that people should consider testing to uh, to improve conversions. So that's, a, that's a really great question. You know, and I'm I was just on the phone earlier today with the Federal Trade Commission. They're going to uh, late in about a month. They're having a, a town hall on behavioral marketing. That Going to, and a lot of the discussion there is trying to figure out, you know, what what are the appropriate ways that this can be used? Are there any concerns? And one one simple guideline is if you're um, using predictive analysis to try to enhance the quality of what you're providing uh, consumers, uh, that's uh, good, uh, and that you should uh, uh, and that you should feel happy about that. If you are instead though uh, super crunching uh, to predict uh, the individualized price that you can, uh, the highest price you can pull out of them, that causes greater concerns. And um, Amazon got in, in trouble uh, a while back when it was doing some randomized testing on price because people were worried that it was doing demographically contingent pricing. And so if you start, people start doing behavioral contingent pricing uh, or demographic condition pricing, uh, they should, uh, they're going to, um, uh, at, at a minimum, they should disclose to their consumers that they're playing that kind of a game. Um, 
Um, and, um, and just to raise another issue that webmasters should, should worry about, this while you've heard that I'm really kind of obsessed and a fan of randomized testing, there are some uh, very legitimate concerns. If randomized tests tell you that you know you, it's more profitable for you to uh, bury your warranty provisions, uh, you know, five levels down, or make it really hard for people to find how to send in a uh, a rebate, you know, that's going to raise some real uh, questions of deception, even if the randomized test shows you that it's profitable. What about those are excellent? Don't do this. Do you have any recommendations for try doing this? Oh yeah. So I mean, I I definitely just uh, uh, the do's is if if you are not doing randomized tests on the graphic elements of your primary landing pages, you know you're just crazy nowadays because it's just routine that you can en enhance your uh, uh, your click-through rate or your sales, you can get 10% lift on the things that, whatever you care about, if you optimize to the thing you care about, uh, by just a simple of, you know, should it be a, uh, should I put a, a, a picture of a, of a puppy or should I emphasize that uh, we use VeriSign? Um, uh, if you uh, haven't been optimizing and start, you'll you'll get a 10% lift easy and, uh, and often more than that. So you want to... Uh, and part of the freedom on the web is that randomized testing is so cheap to do that you don't have to limit yourself to testing just two or three different ideas. As a matter of fact, and this might actually make you feel better about this uniformity point, you, you, uh, you want to try some crazy ideas. It's so easy to test them, you get quick results, and you can then uh, uh, turn them off if the, if the crazy thing isn't working. Jo Joanne Fabrix. It did, uh, uh, did something very uh, uh, unusual. That it, it put up a promotion that if you bought two sewing machines, they would give you 10% off on both sewing machines. And this wasn't one of their top hunches for a promotion that would work. Sewing machines aren't the central product that uh, Joanne Fabric sells. And who needs to buy two sewing machines? But it turned out that a randomized test showed that this had a big impact, a big boost to sales, and after the fact, they now understand that they were turning their consumers into salespeople, that one uh, customer would call up a friend and say, hey, how about both of us buying a sewing machine? Uh, so uh, instead of necessarily leading toward uniformity, uh, you should do randomized testing and do it on... Um, on radically different things. So you just don't want to say, oh, do I have a picture here of a woman in a red shirt or a woman in a blue shirt? But you want to have, uh, you want to test whether you should have a picture of a woman or a picture of something very different than a woman. Uh, I don't know, some, uh, a, 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 a racing car going across the finishing line. 
Uh, and so that's, uh, that's a, a simple idea of the way to do this. And the second thing besides testing is, again, going back and trying to figure out, uh, use either historical data or randomized testing to find out the qualities that your consumers actually want. So you can give them, um, you can suggest to them right up the fact that when they land, they see products that they are more interested in, in, uh, in purchasing. Here's a tough question before we take a break. Intellectual, and, and you get some water and oxygen and other things that you might need with these tough questions. Yeah, the other ones have been tough too. <laughs> intellectual, thank you for answering these tough questions. Um, intellectual property um, of the actual test results. Who owns it? So if I work with Optimus or Offermatica, some of the other players out there, does the client own that exclusively? Should we be concerned about this, particularly with regards to competitive nature of businesses? Yeah, it, well, it, it, uh, uh, it, it all depends on what your contract is with uh, uh, Optimus or Offermatica. And routinely, these contracts uh, give the client uh, the rights to this. And uh, again, if this were, uh, I, I, you could imagine a circumstance where uh, the information had to be made public so that um, uh, so that competitors could also benefit from it. But this is not the kind of uh, it's not that expensive to create this information, and uh, the idea of giving the competitors access so they too could free ride on it. I, uh, uh, this is, uh, I, I don't see a, a reason for that. I actually, however, see some, not intellectual property, uh, uh, some reason, some circumstances where the consumers should have at least knowledge that testing is going on. Uh, uh, but even there, I'm not sure they should know the specifics. They should, uh, uh, there might be uh, one of the things that, that, that could at least be discussed uh, discussed is uh, uh, disclosure of whether testing is occurring or uh, or that it might occur or some kind of option for uh, consumers. Well, if they just got that, that uh, disclosure, consumers could choose not to uh, do business with anybody uh, that treats them like a guinea pig. Now, you know, I'm trying to put that in provocative stance, but, you know, I'm happy to be a guinea pig in a lot of circumstances if it's going to lead toward better quality uh, service for me. Hmm. One one follow up to the intellectual property issue. So as you know, Google went out and purchased Urshan recently, um, and has rolled out Site Optimizer, which is a free multivariant uh, testing platform for anybody that has an Ad AdWords account. You know, should be we should we be we should we be worried that the the uh, the, uh, the the brains behind the Google algorithm are going to start analyzing the site optimizer results and analyzing who is conforming to most conversive websites and, and offer priority for those websites in their natural search results listing. I mean, is there is there really rich data here that's really kind of scary? I guess that's my that's my question. Well, it, uh, yes, it's rich. Uh, but I, I, and I, I just may be missing it, but I don't see, uh, so one thing it should, uh, uh, I, I see a, a, certainly it should be contractable 
and whether Google, as in providing this service, uh, uh, they should it should be governed by contract. Whether they can also take advantage of this data that is being created through uh, Google AdWord um, randomization or not. So, and depending on what if people feel really uh, strongly about it, they can resist letting Google have access to it or not. I actually don't see the um, uh, problem with Google adding into its algorithm about how high uh, various ads are placed. They, they, they seem to have a, a similar incentive of, of trying to, as the consumer, of trying to get the ads that are most relevant, most uh, 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 to uh, to to hook up uh, consumers with the sellers that most want to be hooked up with the, with the uh, with those consumers and and by the way I I may be biased here because the very title of Super Crunchers was picked in part because of a randomized Google AdWords experiment I started off loving the title the end of intuition but I created a uh, Google ad campaign for people that searched on terms such as uh, data mining and number crunching and it turned out that super crunchers had a 63% higher click-through rate and that uh, influenced me in, in changing the title so that's kind of the end of my own intuition. When we return, we're going to take a, take a look at some fun prediction tools that Aaron has, has put together on his website. So let's take a break, everyone. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Life Tips on webmasterradio.fm. We'll be back with more cool tips and advice right after these commercial messages. Hey, what are you reading? Revenue Magazine. It keeps me up to date on everything in performance marketing. Yeah, I get all my information online. <laughs> I don't see a computer next to your boogie board there. Well, I've got a regular magazine here. And Revenue Magazine is the only hard copy magazine that covers affiliate marketing techniques, search technologies, online fraud prevention, and interactive advertising, branding, and marketing. My magazine's got pictures. Revenue Magazine has everything for online marketers, affiliates, merchants, agencies, and networks. And you can read previous issues blogs and more at revenuetoday.com. Uh, mine's got a sevenfold Revenue Magazine, the performance marketing standard. For more information, go to revenuetoday.com. Guys, are you suffering from ED? Email delivery problems? Is your email list underperforming? Then let JPG Mail enhance your results. We've got the best in email enhancement products on the web. Our email delivery service will enlarge and maximize the monetization of your data. JPG Mail will fulfill your needs from data acquisition, management, mailing to reporting, and give you the confidence to pick up visitors, enter a URL easily, and download suppression lists to enjoy that feeling of total satisfaction. We'll give you guys the ultimate tools, and we'll show you how to use them. Email enhancement, where you need it the most. JPGmail.com And now, back to Life Tips, the show that offers expert tips and savvy advice to make life easier and more fun. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Now, here's your host. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Aaron in Ayers, the author of Super Crunchers, a must-read book for anybody in the Internet-related world or anybody, frankly, interested in predicting the future. And welcome back. Thank you. So, predicting prediction tools, interesting concept here. Um, 
could you tell everybody where they could find some of your prediction tools if they're listening in on the web as we speak right now? And we'll dive in and ask you some questions about about, uh, about the challenge you've taken on yourself here. Sure. If you go to uh, www.supercrunchers.com, uh, you'll see a link for prediction tools where I have uh, created and uh, gathered uh, more than 30 prediction tools on uh, all kinds of things uh, so that anybody can plug in uh, uh, some numbers uh, related to themselves or their family and they can uh, take advantage of uh, super crunching results themselves. So if you if you surf on over there uh, and you're pregnant, you can put in a few variables and it'll come up with your due date or if you want to figure out uh, how tall your kid will be as an adult, uh, you can click on a link and uh, add in uh, uh, and I guess I'm doing this right now, uh, type in your kid's uh, uh, gender when uh, the uh, child was born, what date it is now, and uh, uh, some information about uh, your, uh, the, the parent's height, and it will uh, make a prediction about how tall the uh, uh, child will be. And that's just uh, that's such a simple thing uh, to do, but there are tons of other uh, things there that go from predicting the outcome of uh, sporting events to uh, predicting the uh, presidential election to uh, um, and even some very uh, useful ones such as uh, I'm a great fan of faircast.com that will make a prediction of, uh, about whether the uh, uh, the fare of an airline ticket will go up and or down uh, between now and when your flight takes off so if they predict it's going to go up uh, soon you should go out and buy the ticket now if they predict it's going to go down, wait, and uh, hold off on buying the ticket. Uh, uh, so, and indeed, this forecast uh, is a great example of a place where the wisdom of the crowds doesn't wouldn't work. You know, you could set up a prediction market about whether the airfare between uh, uh, Boston and Chicago is going to go up or down in the next uh, 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 two weeks before the flight takes off. But that's, you know, why do you think that the crowd would have good information about that relative to Faircast, which has uh, several terabytes of historic pricing information that they can crunch to find out what the general tendency is. Now, let's, let's hit the pause button on Faircast, and, and this, this sort of um, prediction widget might be a good way to yeah. uh, summarize this um, in, in two words or less. I kind of like that prediction widget. Exactly. Um, it, um, it, it obviously is completely dependent on past information, correct? Yes. It's... And so economic, unforeseen economic conditions cannot have any influence. Would, would you agree with that? Or is there a master switch that would monitor the economic conditions of the, you know, that you could build into a model like this to predict the future? Well, uh, so uh, there have to be unforeseen variables that, that if, they, if they come down, they could draw these, uh, these predictions to, to go badly. You're right. So, uh, for example, could you build in fuel price, you know, average fuel price or history on, on fuel price? Or well, yeah, well, actually, Faircast has done that. Uh, that is one of the variables that they have 
have put into their uh, into their prediction. They take into account, uh, by the way, uh, things. Uh, so it's not just the historical pricing stuff, but they take into account fuel price, even things like whether there's uh, uh, the the team is qualified for the World Series. They go down to I think over a hundred variables uh, go into their uh, predictions, and they re-predict every morning based on that day's uh, available information. So uh, once they make their prediction that day at 7 a.m., uh, if something unforeseen happens or if something that's not on their list of 115 variables uh, impacts it, uh, their prediction can go wrong. But let me tell you, they do take into account fuel price. What are sources for data that are public sources for the type of information to build a prediction widget? Mm -hmm. uh, well, there, uh, there are uh, lots of government is, is one of the great first sources that they're uh, starting to uh, put up uh, all kinds of uh, tax, uh, property tax information is uh, available, and hence that's one of the ways that Zillow can make uh, predictions about how much your house is worth by looking at the publicly available uh, uh, sales information on, on other houses. Um, uh, there's uh, increasing availability uh, through setting up um, uh, data scraping programs that you control the Internet and um, legitimately uh, scrape information that people have left out there uh, for you to use. And so the census leaves all kinds of information out on the Internet that uh, data uh, accumulators have, have started to make available to people in all kinds of, of circumstances. Uh, we, we tend to think of data scraping as being pernicious because a lot of people have sent out bots to scrape emails so that they can spam us, but it's completely legitimate to go to an SEC site and to scrape off from quarterly reports uh, information about firms so that you can build a database about uh, their finances, and um, this is a world where it is easier and easier to capture digital information, to um, uh, conglomerate it, to mash it together, and, uh, and it's gotten way cheaper, of course, to store it. And so uh, the uh, part of the lesson that I'm trying to bring, not to the webmasters, but to uh, regular folks out there, they got to start thinking in terms of terabytes instead of uh, megabytes and gigabytes. Uh, it's, you can buy, uh, they'll happily sell you a desktop with a, a terabyte of uh, a hard drive space. So this is, a, this is a new world where there's tons of data available to crunch. What are some of your other favorite prediction tools that, that, that you have uh, listed here? And, and what was your association with these? Are, are these just sort of bookmarks for prediction tools? Yeah, I've, I've created uh, uh, some of them up at the top, but the majority are ones that I've uh, been collecting and actually um, I, uh, people have been sending to me. So if there are any listeners out there that have a favorite uh, prediction widget uh, or applet that they like of the same kind, uh, Please uh, send it on. Uh, one of my favorite ones that you can see down here is uh, the Lulu Title Score. Again, it's uh, uh, this is a different one, and if you're uh, have, it's kind of addictive. You can plug in uh, different titles of books, and it will come back with a bestseller uh, uh, probability. And of course, this um, this is a probability of a bestseller if you actually are a, a good author, uh, but it's still 
uh, shows you that people do judge books by their cover a bit, and uh, you can plug in uh, titles that you already know. Uh, the Da Vinci Code, by the way, doesn't do a very good job on uh, a bestseller that gets a low ranking. But generally, it does a very good job, uh, surprisingly good job, at picking out uh, uh, bestsellers from non-bestsellers, and then you can throw in uh, your favorite, you know, if you have that novel that you were thinking about writing, uh, uh, put in your tentative uh, title and see how it cashes out. Tell me a little bit about what what sort of creative process you would go through in creating a prediction widget. Sure. Well, I uh, uh, mostly what I would do is I look for um, uh, regression outputs. I, I look for my favorite studies that. Um, uh, that have uh, that have been able to find underlying causes, and as a matter of fact, just uh, oh, about an hour ago, I was flipping through a wonderful book by Ray Fair called "Predicting uh, Presidential Elections and Other Things," and he has uh, some interesting titles, uh, chapters where he goes through the same process of how you do predictions on specific data sets. And so, one thing that I'm going to create a widget. Honestly, uh, it turns out that both Psychology Today and the Red Book um, uh, uh, collected information on um, marital affairs and what are the factors that influence uh, whether you'll have a marital affair. And these things turn on uh, your age and your number of years of marriage and your subjective marital happiness uh, and your religiosity and that uh, if you plug in uh, these uh, pieces of information for yourself or maybe uh, for your partner, it will generate a uh, prediction of the likelihood of a marital affair uh, uh, in the next five years. And so that's uh, now. I and one of the coolest things about uh, these uh, regression techniques that I really should emphasize is the very same output that gives rise to these predictions. It simultaneously uh, tells you uh, how precise that prediction is. Sometimes a regression will come back and say, "Well, here's the prediction, but there wasn't very good data, and so it's not a very precise prediction." It, it could be much higher or lower than this. And other times, um, the regression will come back and say, yeah, we had a lot of data on this kind of a question, and we can make a pretty precise prediction. You can see this, by the way, uh, on the Faircast website. They'll not only make a, uh, give, give you a prediction of whether the price of the airline fare is going up or down, but if you look at the site, they'll then say, by the way, for this kind of prediction, we're right 80% of the time, or we're right 65% of the time, depending on the quality of the data they have. Do you worry that exposing the audience to the results, to the prediction itself, might influence behavior? 
now that is that's a, that is a, uh, a very good question and uh, related a bit to the, uh, something called the Hawthorne effect. And uh, so, yes, now, uh, and maybe, you know, I haven't put up this uh, premarital, uh, excuse me, this marital affair uh, widget yet. Maybe I should, uh, maybe I should uh, have a care before I, I do that. A lot of these things, uh, it, and so it, it depends on the thing. I don't think that the predicting your child's height is going to have much of an impact whether the child knows that uh, she'll grow tall or not, because um, that's not very volitional. But on some of these other uh, tools, uh, it's it's possible that uh, that uh, that there will be this feedback uh, effect that could either uh, increase the chance that it's uh, going to come true or decrease it or uh, cause some other kind of, of uh, damage. But let me say the, the purpose of the site is more uh, frivolous. It's uh, in some sense a provocation. A lot of people want to say, well, how, how can super crunching uh, impact me? And this is just to give you a taste. Uh, actually, with I've had a lot of, uh, there's kind of a, an iron law that people have the hardest idea seeing how super crunching could help them do what they do. We all tend to think that what we do is too special. And uh, uh, lots of interviewers have uh, been uh, uh, making that claim to me. And just as another provocation, my son and I uh, went out and we coded uh, a bunch of Stephen Colbert interviews. And it turns out that Colbert asked different kinds of questions to different kinds of guests. And that this comes out uh, pretty clearly if you just crunch uh, some numbers on this. And so even uh, even interviewers or even interviewees might be aided by a little bit of number crunching. At the same time of their of, of the crowd being exposed to to influencing their behavior in a negative way or one a way that would be inverse, do so you think the opposite is true that you know people could be alerted to uh, to a caution flag? Oh, yeah. Of, yeah. So, for example, Colbert asks different questions to men uh, than he asks to women, mm -hmm. right? And so he might. Uh, uh, if he if he learned about that, he might uh, uh, say, "Oh, I I he could either embrace that, or uh, it says it works for him, or he might reflectively say, no, I I didn't mean to do that.' Uh, you know, it's one we find that he asks different questions to uh, people that have a uh, uh, um, a visible political affiliation from those that don't. He he tends to treat ex, uh, so-called experts that different than non-experts. Uh, uh, he, my, my son is 12. People that my 12-year-old deems to be famous, he asks different questions to them than to people that are uh, non-famous by his life. So, so, uh, and so you, uh, it, it, there could be feedback mechanisms, and whether they, some of them might be uh, positive. I mean, indeed. Um, that's one of the great values of doing this is that you you might learn something that causes you to change your behavior. That's why you do the test in the uh, in the first place. And uh, um, to give another example that uh, that I actually worked on in the uh, earlier this year, the New York Times uh, published a. Um, 
uh, an article about a statistical study done by Justin Wolfers, um, uh, providing pretty strong uh, uh, and worrisome results that NBA refs uh, tended to call fewer fouls against players of the same of their same race. And uh, so black refs uh, had fewer fouls against black players, white refs had fewer fouls against uh, white players, and that uh, uh, it's not a huge effect, but enough that a all-white crew versus an all-black crew might impact, uh, cause there to be about a 3% change in the likelihood of winning the game. And, uh, and so I don't want to say it's dramatic, but this is consequential, and the NBA should want to know about that and, and see if there's anything it can do to get rid of this uh, small effect. So sometimes feedback effects uh, uh, we should uh, hope for. If you were to check the web page on an e-commerce site, what areas of the page or what elements on the page would be the most likely to positively improve conversions? Yeah, so here you, um, I should say, I, I know a lot about this, but you should go to the the, the pros of uh, places like Automatic who have uh, a lot more knowledge. But just, just to start, you're going to want to uh, know uh, uh, how much... Um, uh, how uh, how much how many links uh, how much busyness you give people uh, so there's a you want to give people you want to test whether giving them fewer uh, links uh, to click through whether you drive them to register for example whether that's a more successful strategy than giving them uh, uh, tastes of other content uh, is, is one thing and that's you, know, you just have to there's a trade off people need to have some information, and uh, uh, they won't register unless they get in, uh, enough information, but too much will just they'll be satisfied with all the free information and they won't register. So that's one thing you're going to want to test on, on how much you uh, uh, emphasize the price, how big it is, or emphasize the possibility of promotions or discounts. You'll want to uh, play with the uh, graphic elements. Uh, so uh, but in some ways, the, these elements are, um, uh, there's so many dimensions of them that I, uh, I think the big lesson is that you shouldn't uh, really pay particular attention to me. You should uh, dream big yourself and try some crazy stuff. Uh, uh, now, I, when I say really, there's going to be limits. The idea you don't want to go out and, if you're a weight loss site, you don't want to say, uh, you know, try the all-fat diet. But as far as the, the graphic elements, what aspects to um, to run, uh, uh, try a bunch of different things. And, and indeed, one of the lessons... Here's a great story for me, Harmony. 
eHarmony wanted to find out whether forcing people to register before they got any, uh, before they could click through, whether that was more successful than giving them maybe three links for that they could go check out free information before they registered. And it turned out they did a randomized test on this, and in the United States, uh, forcing people to register before they got information did better, but in Canada, uh, forcing people to register before they got uh, information did a lot worse, and uh, eHarmony doesn't run commercials in Canada, and so people don't know as much about the product, and so uh, part of what randomization will tell you is actually how uh, uh, is possibly the different segments of your base uh, should be treated differently. Do you have a thought on what size test is adequate to draw conclusions? Uh, I, there is a fancy uh, uh, technical answer to uh, uh, power equations that you can run, and most of the optimization sites will, uh, will happily give you some, some specifications on this. But if, if you, uh, for most large effects, if you start uh, getting 10,000 page views, uh, comparing two different elements, that's going to be, uh, so 5,000 on one versus 5,000 on another, that's going to be enough where you can very quickly start start seeing uh, seeing uh, uh, that one you know, that one is winning the horse race. And, you know, first of all, I want to thank you today for joining the show. We, we've got a few minutes left um, to ask you a, a couple more questions. Um, but do you have a feel in your, um, in, yet for the number of people actually out there using multivariant testing on their websites? Do you have any data on that that you've heard through the grapevine with your conversations with Offermatic or Optimus or some of the other companies that you've, that you've have asked you to come and talk with their, their clients about this fascinating area. Do you have a feel for that? Well, I I, I only have a vague feel, and I, or I should say uh, some, um, I was talking to a reporter from Ad Age who said, oh, isn't everybody doing this? Uh, and uh, everybody from a uh, um, um, I, I have a sense that uh, the majority of large websites uh, have started into the game. Uh, and that's, uh, even there, notice I have shied away from telling you whether it's, uh, where it is between 51% and 99%. Uh, okay? and, but I have a sense that wherever that is, that the penetration of this declines uh, as the size of the website uh, goes down. In some ways, uh, that's reasonable. You know, if you really are a ma and pa website with uh, very few hits, uh, then there's not a lot of value uh, for doing this, or there's going to be a limitation to how many different tests uh, you can run. If you're only, or if it's a blog, you know, that only three people come to a year, uh, uh, including your mom and dad, you know, you're, you're not going to get much of a, uh, of a, of a value you out of doing randomized testing. Uh, so, uh, uh, so, uh, but on a, um, 
on a volume basis, uh, I think that it is, um, I think that more and more firms are doing this. And uh, what we're, what you're seeing from uh, Google and others is we're also starting to see a democratization of this, that we're going to see it push down to lower and lower levels, and that you're going to, uh, we're going to start seeing software that allows people to do it uh, themselves. Uh, Google already allows people to set up these randomized campaigns on Google Ads, uh, but we're going to be able to, we're going to see it wrapped into other uh, software so it can be, um, you can edit it right into your uh, HTML code. The testing and the regression analysis, the algorithms, you know, the crunching of data, it seems like it, it covers a lot of areas. For the webmasters, you know, an opportunity to improve conversions. For the, for the human element and perhaps an understanding to, 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 to better ourselves uh, for, for, the, uh, for other people a chance to feel good and confirm that they're on the, the right track in life. What do you think that in the end of the day number crunching can really do to, to help make life better? Um, and is it just gonna, are we just going to fall more in love with, with crunching numbers? Or do you think there's a danger zone in there somewhere too? Yeah, so uh, generally, it's, uh, uh, making more accurate predictions is going, uh, is going to, it already has, uh, uh, improved our quality of life. It's uh, already started to lead toward uh, uh, better choices in uh, medicine. It's starting to have a, an impact in improving our educational system now that we're going to more data-driven uh, educational decisions. Uh, but uh, there, are, uh, there are some downsides. Uh, uh, before we mentioned it's when it's, uh, when it's bad, inaccurate predictions, uh, people can be hurt. But even accurate predictions from the, uh, can be used for um, inappropriate uh, purposes. And I, I do worry that, uh, that there are some contexts where hidden um uh, hidden data mining can lead toward um, uh, uh, pricing or warranty decisions that um, negatively impact consumers. And in some way, uh, there are firms that are uh, going out and predicting consumers' happiness and then uh, trying to make sure that nobody walks away too happy. Uh, if you're super crunching, so here's a concern is it's kind of the corporate Zoloft uh, uh, that it, 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 takes that, it, it evens out the highs and lows of consumer happiness. If, if they predict that you're really unhappy and about to switch suppliers, they'll come in and start throwing bennies at you to keep you, keep you happy. But if you're too happy, they say, well, look, we can raise the price or reduce the quality of our service and, and he's still going to stay with us. So that, that's the kind of concern. And the, the second thing that I think we should keep in mind, this is a world where super crunching tends to lead to decreased uh, discretion by frontline employees. That um, once you have figured out that a particular algorithm or a script or a routine does a better job, then you're not going to want to give uh, discretion to um, the loan officers that we used to give to the school teachers. Um, 
Uh, we, we make movies about innovative, inspiring school teachers. But, you know, a, um, uh, I, I tend to believe that half of school teachers are below average and that, you know, to build a educational system around the possibility of a few exceptional teachers is, uh, I think, has now been uh, demonstrated to not work as well as more routinized uh, systems. And this, this does raise a very separate concern. This may not be the best world for human flourishing if you're a line-item employee. You're like, even physicians are starting to lose uh, discretion. Uh, they Patients aren't treating them like the oracles of all wisdom. They instead are showing them as a substitute for a web portal. Because they say, well, I found this on WebMD. Why should I believe what you said? You know, or uh, show me the study. They're reaching through the physician uh, to get to the underlying information. One final question for you, and I'm certain it's impossible to answer. <laughs> but if you were to predict the future about predicting the future, what do you see? How much influence do you think, uh, you know, algorithmic prediction of the future is going to come into play with business decisions, financial decisions, uh, you know, life-making decisions? I mean, how, how how connected are we going to become in 20 to 50 years from now with with, uh, with with detailed analysis. Well, so uh, one uh, one thing I predict is that we're going to see uh, a radical increase in our uh, statistical knowledge. That uh, high school courses in statistics will uh, increasingly replace calculus. They're much much more valuable than calculus. So about two percent of college graduates ever used a calculus. A hundred percent of high school graduates can use statistics. Uh, at least as being informed consumers. So we're going to, that's coming uh, 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 increasingly. We're going to see more people are going to have to get into the game. And we're going to see, secondly, an evolution instead of a fight between intuition and numbers, we're going to see uh, people, the best decision makers, are going to be able to toggle back and forth between their intuitions and uh, and statistics that uh, this super crunching it doesn't mean uh, the end of intuition but it uh, increasingly means that uh, you're going to have to be willing to put your intuition to the test well on that note Ian thank you very much for joining our show today uh, a pleasure you're a tough questioner <laughs> And uh, tune in, everyone, next week. Thanks to all of our friends over at Webmaster World, Eddie and the gang, putting this show together. Uh, until next week, everyone, we'll, uh, we'll hope your life gets better, smarter, faster, and wiser with, with now numbers added to your list of things to focus on. See you next week.